welcome to episode 18 of the Helpful Huddle podcast. Thank you so much for listening in today. In our episode today, I get the opportunity to interview Gabrielle Nicolette. She is someone who is doing so much good for our youth, and her work hits very close to home for me. You are in for a treat as we dive into her story and how she is helping others. So turn up your volumes, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Helpful Huddle podcast. I am your host, Luke, and I'm sitting here with a new friend of mine, Gabrielle. Say hi to the people. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and Gab- Gabrielle, I always like to start off podcasts like with a little little intro of how we met each other. Mm-hmm. And our our story of how we met each other is super interesting, super long. Um, it's actually not. We met nine minutes ago <laughs> and have just been talking off camera since. So that is the whole story. And I'm super excited for this interview. I was telling you off camera that what you do and what you work on hits close to home for me. And I think it's a really important topic that not that many people at least think about. They know about it, but don't think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to dive in. So yeah, let's do it. Perfect. Perfect. So let's dive in. So at least how I like to start off my questions for this is like, I like to start off broad, learn more about you, your story, things from childhood to now kind of walk me through how you got to this point. Yeah. So, um, I was telling you off camera, Mm -hmm. I was a German speaker before I was an English speaker. So as a very young child, my mother who was a German citizen and now lives here married an American, um, was speaking to me in her native language. Um, and that sort of first language was an entryway for me into in, this is all hindsight, obviously (laughs) into like communication and learning someone else's language. And so, um, you know, I learned German first, I went to school, I learned English, the German kind of fell off. I never studied it. The The school I went to um, had had a German program, actually, um, that was no longer available when I was there. And so instead, I took French. Um, and I took Spanish. And I had the opportunity to actually go to France, um, both when I was in high school, and also when I was in college, I did my junior year abroad in France, um, cool. made some lifelong friends there. It's been longer than I care to remember. Um, and so that was kind of like, I don't know, in hindsight, again, I think this whole notion of like, how do you communicate with others? How, and, and the first answer of that, the first tier of that is like, well, you learn their actual language. And then I was working in an office, um, after undergraduate, uh, after my undergrad and I was so bored. (laughs) (laughs) I was like out of my mind bored. And I was in an international organization here in DC and there are lots of them. Um, Yeah. And so I had the opportunity to like actually speak French and actually speak Spanish sometimes and like with a bunch of different people. And it just, it wasn't hitting the spot for me. And um, so I stayed there because the salary and the benefits were amazing. (laughs) I couldn't stay there very long. So um, I decided to kind of really like take a sharp left turn. And um, I got a job shadowing a child, an autistic child in a preschool. So this was in 1997. 
this was their first um, diagnosed autistic kiddo at this particular preschool and they were going to keep him. Usually what happened back in the day, which doesn't seem like a reasonable thing to say, but somehow it is, <laughs> they would have counseled him into a private school, um, mm. to like a, a special education setting. And they decided that they weren't going to do that. They were going to keep him. Okay. But he needed, he needed help. And so I signed on and, and sort of, again, with the hindsight, my mom was a special educator. So Interesting. Like, why I didn't think about, you know, special education to begin with is, is, a, is an interesting question. And I don't have an answer, actually, um, other than maybe 20 somethings want to do something different from their parents. Um, and so I started working with this kiddo with who was autistic and I got to go to his speech therapy appointments with him. And I got to go to his occupational therapy appointments with him. And I got to go to his behavioral therapy appointments with him. And within three months, I was like, oh, I want to do that. Um, and I applied to grad school for speech language pathology, speech therapy, and went the following year. Um, and so, you know, that becomes its own process, obviously. And, and speech pathology, speech therapy, when you do it, if you don't have an undergrad, which I didn't, it's a three-year master's program. So I had to take a year of prerequisites and then the two years on top of that. And then when I finished there, um, I went to work at a private special education school in Maryland mm -hmm. called the Ivy Mount School, um, which at the time had something like 10 speech therapists, eight occupational therapists. Like it was a really fabulous environment in which to learn my craft, mm -hmm. um, you know, cause grad school is one thing, but when you come out, it's like, okay, what am I doing here? <laughs> and that was really fun to like learn from other people. Um, let me know if you want me to stop talking. Cause Ooh, I'll keep go going. Again. This is amazing. Okay. <laughs> um, I worked at Ivy Mount for about th three years and in between I had a baby. So I went part-time. Um, the nice thing about speech therapy as a, as a career is it's very flexible. Um, there are lots of different niches. So I focused on child language, but like actually in the master's program, you can do adult neurological issues. So, so adults who have had stroke, you can do swallowing, you can work in a hospital with traumatic brain injury. You can, I mean, like the, the field is really broad. Um, and then, you know, kind of once you decide, then you try to go deeper so that you gain some knowledge in a, in an expertise and a niche, but I had decided child language and I knew that from the start. And then I was doing, um, some consulting for a speech therapist and occupational therapist in some preschools. So what that looked like was I would go to a preschool I would spend some amount of time observing a particular child that the teachers had their eye on. Um, and this happens, right? So three-year-olds go to, to go to preschool. They've never been in school before. And parents haven't necessarily noticed anything in particular, or they have, and they haven't quite known what to do about it. And so they send the kid to school and maybe things will be better at school. And then uh, the teachers sort of flag that. Um, kiddo isn't able to sit for circle in the way that we might expect. Um, kiddo is not expressing himself with a, with a degree of clarity that we expect for the age. 
Um, kiddo doesn't appear to hear me when I call his name, those kinds of things, right? So I was going in to observe um, these types of kiddos and then sort of direct the teachers and give them strategies. Um, I also did quite a few parent meetings um, where we were like, okay, so we want to bring some of, you know, various types of intervention because here's what we're seeing, here's what we can do about it. So that was like a first point of contact for many of those parents. Um, and then sort of by accident, I had evaluated this, this child who was autistic um, and who later got a diagnosis, but it was early days and what he needed first was some speech therapy. And I referred them out and nobody was available. And it was right about this time that I was thinking about opening a private practice. And they came back to me and they said, nobody's, nobody can take us. And I said, they lived a mile away from my house. And I was like, guess what? <laughs> I can take you. <laughs> and so that's how I started my private practice, which continues today. Um, it's amazing. From, yeah, one client to a hundred families in the practice now. Uh, and about eight therapists. That's absolutely incredible. And thank you for doing what you're doing. And I mean, from the bottom of my heart, I really do mean that for people that don't know this part of my story is that I went to, through speech from as young as I can remember, I was in speech therapy. I don't remember a whole lot because I was super young, but I know that I was in it until sixth grade when it stopped being, at least that I think it stopped being um provided by the public school yeah. so it, it played a huge role in my life and I don't I mean I remember practicing things but I mostly remember being able to get out of class a little bit early and go to do something that's a little more fun yeah um, but that's the goal it, goal is that it be fun because yes. nobody can learn anything when they're stressed out right and so like part mm. of the reason people have and I, I think it's I hope it's true across the board because certainly the, the people I've, I've interacted with, like they have such a positive association with it that it really helped them. And I, that's what I'm hearing from you yes. is like, it was Yes, fun. I have all positive memories from it. No, I can't even think of a single negative besides the, the occasional, like me being frustrated that I'm not getting something, but nothing having to actually do with yeah. the experience that I had. So yeah. it was an amazing experience. And I know it's helped many, many people because I was in class with multiple people. It wasn't private. Um, but develop friendships and it's a good way to meet people for kiddos like that, that are meeting people that are going through the same stuff. Yeah. And it's nice knowing that you're not alone, especially when you're eight, nine, 10, 11 going yes. through it all. Yes. Yes. And that's such a hard age. Actually, it's funny because my, one of my particular specialties is I love seeing like kids who are two years old and younger. Um, mm -hmm. So my practice is mostly early childhood based. My speech therapy practice is, you know, five and under, but like of those, I love the two-year-olds and I have a bunch of therapists who also love the two-year-olds, but because they're frustrated and they just want to communicate and we can catch them on the upswing. Like this is the thing about early intervention. Early intervention is amazing because it works mm -hmm. really well. Right. For sure. But the other thing I love is a frustrated 11, 12, even 13 year old who is still working on their R's. It's like my That's, favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. Cause you can give real talk to those kids. Like I am able to be, and this is true of many other therapists too, that person who's not their teacher, who's not their parent, who is cheering them on and who's um, 
consciously making changes on their own behalf so that the student will be successful, right? So like, if you're not successful, it's, it's actually my problem that you're not being successful and I need to figure out what to do about it. And so you always feel you, the client, the kiddo always feels like they're in the driver's seat if we're doing it, if we're doing it well. (laughs) For sure. No, absolutely. For sure. And I can firsthand attest to all of that. And I've, and I was actually had the opportunity little, little later on. I mean, I was still in high school, but got to go back and see my old speech teacher. And we had conversations like that. And they're always, they were always so positive. So super thankful for what you're doing. Um, But what I want, I want to kind of move into the next portion and stuff that we were talking about before this started was kind of two facets of it. One that I want to kind of talk about first is for the child, like what does the process of you working with them look like? And then later on, I want to go into like what the parents can do to help out on the back end. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I always start with, this is back to the, um, hindsight is 2020. And how do you communicate with other people? You have to learn their language. Okay. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing about a frustrated two-year-old. They're not speaking yet, (laughs) but they are communicating, right? Mm -hmm. All, and you have a baby, that baby is communicating with you, right? We don't expect three-month-olds to have words, but we do expect them to let us know when they're tired, cranky, hungry, wet, right? How do they do that? They cry, right? Yes, all the time. You start to make maybe maybe little smiles, maybe a little huh? like mm-hmm. cool, maybe. Um, anyway, the point being, I, I'm like, I want to see your baby. Um, <laughs> He's around here out. somewhere. Oh my god, I could geek out all day long about child development, seriously. But but my job, if I'm coming in again, is to learn your language, learn what it is that you are trying to communicate, and that's where we start. The other piece of it, which is inherent in that process, is I need you to like and trust me because I'm about to get you to try risky new things that you're going to be bad at Mm -hmm. at first, right? And in order to try new things, we have to, this is true of humans generally, right? We have to feel safe. And, and kids who are working on developmental issues or speech issues or motor issues, any kind of early intervention in particular, but this is true. Again, this is true of all humans. This is true of all learning and all teachers. Okay. Uh, Of which we're talking about a little small subset here. You have to feel safe. You have to feel seen and you have to feel understood. Hmm. Once we lock that in, and actually that's, it's not a one and done process. It's not even a two and done process. That is a continuing, like sharpen the saw kind of activity. But once I'm getting goosebumps, just thinking about it. Once we do it now we can do, and I can do pretty much anything I can get. And it it sounds a little diabolical when I say it, but like, I can get you to do anything. Again, 
that is good for you, that you want, mm. that right is in this developmental trajectory. But, but it isn't until we've locked that in and you think that I'm the most fun person in your whole life that we can do anything else. I think that in my experience, that's totally accurate. The whole build, building trust, building that relationship at the very beginning is so important, especially when you're about to go on a very uncomfortable journey. Cause that, and that's the big key of it. And you nailed it with, you're going to be asking your students to do something that they are going to fail at, at first and failure sucks. Yes. And this is, this is back to the thing. Like, again, I, I can geek out all day for mm -hmm. a two-year-old who is, who is pre let's call him pre-verbal, right? He already knows he sucks at talking. Yes. Literally kids already know from very early on that there is something that's too hard for them and they're aggravated by it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then two-year-olds are frustrated anyway. Right. Those yeah. <laughs> they call terrible are, twos. <laughs> so yeah, but wait till you get to three, but anyway, All right, that's um, what I keep hearing. <laughs> <laughs> right. So like we gotta, yeah, they, we have to build success. Success begets success. And failure begets failure. And so part of the reason early intervention is so important is because the, the longer you wait, the more you've failed. Mm -hmm. And the, the earlier you intervene, the more you can create success. And that is a fulfilling prophecy. And I love that. And something that I thought of when you said that was like, I, I believe this, please correct me if you have a different way of thinking about it, but I think that like confidence is a learned behavior. I think that confidence is built through many successes and with, but with successes also comes trying, which also comes failure. So, so it's, they're all intertwined, but to build that confidence, you do have to have a long standing of success and, and what you're talking about, like the early intervention it point blank period is that the earlier you catch it, the earlier it is to fix, become, become confident in so on and so forth. Yeah, no, there's no question in my mind. And particularly with like, again, with this younger set, when you catch them on the upswing, right? So they haven't had a lot of opportunity to fail. Now, mm -hmm. what's interesting to me about this is you by stepping in and providing. So, so adults who are stepping in to provide, um, help and scaffolding and support and therapy that child knows in their bones and i suspect you have this too you know in your bones that there's hard do we swear on this podcast you absolutely can there is hard shit that i don't know how to do yet that if i work hard i will do it mm. I don't think you can underestimate, and I, it goes back to confidence that what you're saying, it's exactly what you're saying, which is, okay, I don't know how to do this yet, but I know how to fail. I know how to succeed and I know how to try. And so what, what's the big deal? Right. Right. No, I, I love that. And I think the early, like you keep talking about, and this is a whole different conversation that we can turn this into, but I think. <laughs> The, er the early failure leads to early successes, leads to so many people have the issue of like 
fear of failure. And I think we're all guilty of it, but it's an overwhelming fear. And if you attack that at the beginning with every little thing, you're, you're, pa- you're in theory, you're past it, the order you get because you've built so many successes, so much confidence, so on. Yeah. No, there's no question. My, um, do we have time for a story? I have a quick story. Absolutely. Um, my daughter, when she was very young, had some sensory processing issues, meaning she had like s- extreme sensitivity on the, on her hands and feet. And she had some tactile kinds of things. She was a very fretful child, baby, um, happy, but then also fretful. I didn't know what was going on. I'm in child development. Like I was like, I don't know what's, I, I, I don't know. She wasn't walking. So I took her to a physical therapist, but the PT, the physical therapist was like, I can teach her how to walk, but I think this is sensory based. So let's go over to occupational therapy. So she got occupational therapy as well. This girl is now, first of all, she's going to be, she's 17. She's like the captain of her track team. She's about to apply to college. Like she, at the time, yeah, at the time I was like, eh, she's never going to walk. She's never going to be, have friends. Like I was devastated. Um, and that's, and, and the part of the reason I say that is not because all kids will have such a successful outcome that that's not going to happen, but the outcome mm-hmm. is irrelevant because the work ethic that she got to instill in herself and that was instilled in her as she worked so hard to tolerate her feet on the ground. Right. But she knows in her bones that there are hard things and she can do them. Um, And she has taught herself how to play the guitar and she has taught herself how to draw and she works hard and isn't the best runner on the team. And she doesn't care. Because she's getting personal bests whenever she runs. And she's like, I did better than myself. I'm great. <laughs> That's an amazing thought process. And I think something that you you just touched on is something that I wanted to ask you and that I mentioned earlier is both on the speech pathology side and life, I guess, but the parental side of having a child that is going through this and I know this is something that you specifically wanted us to talk about so I'm going to give you the floor of that you take it where you want to I love it thank you for um I would have totally forgotten and we would have like spent all our time on the child end because that I that's what I have loved for so long during the pandemic I decided to certify as a life coach specializing in parenting um And the reason I did that was because I was coaching so many parents and coaching doesn't have a license, but I was going to say without a license, meaning Mm -hmm. I was saying I was doing coaching and really I was doing a lot of telling, um, a lot of advice giving. Right. You, the question you asked though, is sort of what happens on the parent side of Mm -hmm. a child having a developmental issue of any kind? Um, be it speech, be it motor, be it developmental, something like autism, ADHD is one that I see a lot in my practice, right? Kids who, and Mm -hmm. and we call them orchid kids, um, around here because they are, um, they are sensitive. They need a specific amount of water and sunlight and temperature. Um, right. They need a specific teaching. They need a specific 
um, set of routines in which to thrive. So that's why we call them orchids. But um, from the parent side, it can be very overwhelming and really hard to manage your own self when you're seeing your child struggle so much. Mm -hmm. And I think we kind of assume, at least I did as a parent back in the day, um, and my kids are 17 and 20 now, but as a parent of a young children, I kind of assumed that like my job is to make their life as easy as possible. And my job is to make sure that they are never, it's not that my job is to make sure they're never sad, but there was an element of that. Like if mm -hmm. children are upset and sad, that's a bad thing is kind of where I was operating from. And I think, I think society at large does kind of operate from that space. Like mm -hmm. I just want my kids to be happy. Right. right? So the big lie is <laughs> we can't all be happy all the time, nor should we, because if we were, we wouldn't know what happy is. Um, True that. Right. Like yes. we need contrast, mm -hmm. but as a parent, the thing that's really hard about contrast is to tolerate it. Number one, many of us were never taught how to tolerate it in ourselves. So mm -hmm. that's why we go on social media. That's why we watch Netflix. That's why we gamble, watch porn, drink too much, eat too much, do all of those things, right? Because we're shop, we're trying to feel better. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we're really triggered when this extension of ourselves, you know, our heart walking around outside of our bodies, our kids are being uncomfortable in their emotions because now I'm not only am I uncomfortable and not only are you uncomfortable, but now I'm uncomfortable about the fact that you're uncomfortable. Yep. <laughs> right. And there's a thing that happens and this is a real neurological phenomenon, which is we have mirror neurons, um, which will mimic so our brains will mimic the state of the brain of the person we're with or most connected to so uh. if i am a parent and i'm with a screaming child so kiddo is like right lost their mind lid is completely flipped my lid is going to get flipped too my brain is going to do that it's going to match unless i take action to keep myself calm. Interesting. And then if I take action to keep myself calm, which usually involves deep breaths, remembering that that's a baby and they would do it differently if they could, remembering that they don't know that it's three o'clock in the morning and they're screaming about their diaper, right? Mm -hmm. If you can stay calm, the likelihood that your child is going to stay calm goes way up. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I often like to say, like, think about a meeting, a skilled, um, somebody who's really skilled at running a meeting, they control the energy in the room. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, True that. so you can also, as the leader of your family, as the CEO of your family control the energy in the room. Um, and that's like a, a, an actual neurological neurobiological thing that happens between 
people who are close together in relationship. That, and that's, that's also interesting. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's so, so that's some of what we talk about in coaching actually mm-hmm. is like, yes, your child is screaming. The answer is almost never like parents come to me and they're like, my child has bad behavior. And, and what ends up happening on the other side of, you know, lots of discussion and and there's strategies, of course, I provide parents with a lot of strategies, but really what it comes down to is you need to stay calm. And if you can't stay calm, you need to figure out why so that you can stay calm. Mm-hmm. Man. <laughs> like, and- if you nail that, you nail the whole game. Man, and you have to learn if anyone's out there that's about to have a kid, learn that quick, <laughs> learn it quick, because <laughs> it's so overwhelming at the beginning. It really can be and is, in my experience, it was extremely those first two weeks, extremely overwhelming because you think about it and like from and I know this isn't even what we're talking about, but um. I, we went to the hospital and left with another person. Like, that, yes, that. It is overwhelming. You, you, okay, wait, let's take it one step further. You yeah. brought a stranger home and agreed to keep them for at least 18 years. Yes, and they are completely dependent. Completely. Don't even know daytime from nighttime. Completely <laughs> dependent. Yeah. <laughs> It's it <laughs> literally all day long geek out about this, but it's big deal. And yeah. it's always, maybe it's a good thing that like most people are not doing what we're doing. We're just like, oh my, God, I can't believe it. Yeah. At the same time, it is such a tremendous growth opportunity. Yes. Uh, right. It, it, it actually, you, you can go way metaphysical and way woo woo about it and all that. And that's fine. But like, just bringing that disruption home will show you what you're made of. Yep. Yes. <laughs> wow. We could, we could go on a whole different tangent with all of this. Yeah. Um, I want, I do want to try to see, if we can circle it back to, um, I guess, cause it's for me like this, it, this whole topic hits so close to home. Um, and some, another topic we were talking about off camera, we had, we, we knew each other for nine minutes. I feel like we covered a lot of stuff off camera topics. Um, but we were talking about how, like, to use your words back in the day, the, um, bilingualism was not Mm -hmm. as progressive or as much of a thing, but now it's a very popular thing. Um, and as, as someone who has a, Colombian from South America wife who speaks fluent Spanish and she's amazing. She's so much smarter than me. She knows like four languages. Um, But is my child is going to be raised up in a bilingual home and with the pursuit of trilingual and a third language. Um, And this is kind of the same thing on both sides for you as the professional, like what should our expectations be of our child learning multiple languages all at once as well as what we should expect as parents on that on that same note i love it okay i'm gonna go all the way back to that we can talk about and i will we'll talk about like general principles and then we'll come back and modify them for specific situations 
So bilingualism is great for brains. There is good research on this. Learning multiple languages increases your cognitive flexibility. It's really nice when you travel. <laughs> um, yep. It is a good thing, like capital G, capital T, research-based, yes, okay? Um, and there are ways to do it that are that will facilitate, uh, make things easier on the language learner. So one of those is consistency. So if parents are considering raising their kids bilingual and you've got, um, so in your case, you've got a Spanish speaker and a mostly English speaker. So you're gonna do what's called one parent, one language. So you will be speaking English to your child your wife will be speaking Spanish to your child. And then as a family, you'll, you'll be speaking, the two of you will be speaking whatever language you speak, which is probably English. For parents who speak the same language, usually it's a minority language. So if you've got a Spanish speaking couple living in the US, you can do what's called minority language at home. So you speak Spanish at home, you um, speak English in the world, and then that works out um, where you, you've created kind of your own little language bubble at home. Mm -hmm. um, there are other, lots of other ways to do this. Some families hire um, caregivers who speak another language because they don't. So like, mm -hmm. again, there's lots of ways to skin this cat. Um, so that's kind of the general principle. At about age three or four, <laughs> kids will get resistant to speaking the minority, usually the minority language. Because they've noticed their brains are sorting developmentally. They're like, oh, this is a girl and this is a boy. And we, that's a whole other conversation too. But like you have long hair and I have short hair and you, you run and I, so they're sorting everything. Got it. One of the things they're sorting is what language are people speaking? And they're aware for the first time that there are different languages until, until about age three, they're not actually, many kids are not actually that aware. That's when you get the resistance at home where kiddo is going to come home from school and start talking in English to your wife. Interesting. Now you're at an inflection point. And this is where we got to go specific to the situation, which is because, and then if kiddo has any kind of language processing or speech delay, we want to make accommodations for what we're expecting a successful result to be right mm -hmm. but in general when they come home and they're like well they speak english at school so i'm gonna speak english at home too haha -ha. um to playfully redirect playfully make it clear that oh somebody's talking to me but i can't understand and and we used to do it all the time my husband used to do it all the time ¿Qué? No entiendo. Hablando, pero, pero and act really confused. They get it like that. Awesome. Versus, you need to speak Spanish to mommy. Mom doesn't like it when you speak English. Like, none of that, right? Got you got to keep it playful. You got to keep it useful, right? And useful is if I want to tell mom something, I'm gonna I'm gonna want to tell her in Spanish. The other little tip about that is. If they're lacking vocabulary, you got to jump in and help them. This is not a test. Mm -hmm. right? And this is true, but this is true for all kids too, um, right? Life is not a test. Like we don't want to 
continuously quiz our kids about stuff that we already know and that they probably already know, or maybe they forgot, you know, like there's too much, there's too much quizzing in life. Um, so you want to, you want to jump in with a word. Um, and then the next thing that happens is you got to know, and I think this is big on the parent coaching side too. Um, you have to know who's in front of you. Like, again, you brought this stranger home and you have the opportunity as you grow together, as, as we grow as parents, as our children grow as, as children and into people. Um, cause by the way, our job is to raise adults, right? Like that's the goal. Um, but we get to, we, we have the opportunity to get to know them and the unique people that they are. And I think this is another sticky wicket of parenting, which is we think that our kids belong to us and uh, they don't. <laughs> and anyone has more who has more than one child will know. Those guys arrive here, we arrive here kind of as ourselves. And we just, it is my belief that we just come, become more ourselves. <laughs> Interesting. And, and, and that's actually my goal for clients that I work with, for parents, um, for the kids of the parents I work with is like, who are you and what do you need? And how can I help you be more that, be more yourself, mm -hmm. right? In yeah. whatever format that takes. Interesting. No, that's also, that's also interesting. And a whole different thought process of parenting, honestly. And, mm. um, yeah, like that, we, we went in a whole different direction than I thought there at the end, but, <laughs> no, but I love it because it's so true. And the more I think about it, like I'm, we're, we, but in my situation, I and my wife are raising this child to be the best version of themselves, not to be many me or many her or anything. It's, what, how can we assist them to become the best version of themselves? Yeah. And sometimes it's really, it's a little bit like looking through a funhouse mirror because you see elements of yourself. For mm -hmm. sure, you see elements of yourself. Of course. Um, you know, jeans are a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and not blue jeans. But <laughs> like, but it's, 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 um, it's not that it's warped, but it's different, right? And their experience is not our experience. Um, and, and the way that they handle things is a mix. And so that becomes, you know, again, you, if you, you, if you really dial in on it, you can like have some pretty trippy experiences where you're like, oh, I would not have done it that way. Isn't that so interesting versus I wouldn't have done it that way. They should have done it this other way that I would do it. Right. Um, no, that is interesting. Yeah, it can be very challenging depending on how you were raised, how 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 the parents were raised. It can feel very challenging to mm -hmm. allow um allow a child to really be themselves. Um because there is a lot of pressure, there's a lot of societal pressure on like kids should behave a certain way. There's a lot and um, there just kind of are a lot of rules about like what parents do, what kids do. You know, my job as a parent is if we, again, go back to this, like 
automatic parenting thing. Like my job as a parent is to provide for you. And your job as the child is to like, listen and respect me. Is it though? (laughs) (laughs) Because if I'm demanding respect, which is really obedience, I just watched a, a really interesting thing on Instagram about that. If I'm demanding obedience, but I'm not respecting you, then what am I teaching you? Yeah. So, yeah, right? And I was like, Oof. yeah. <laughs> interesting. That's an interesting thought of it. And again, we could go down all, we're going to, we are flying Bring and we're going to have to do Bring another, back, Luke. we're going to have to do, do a whole nother episode because I have so many questions about like what we're talking about, but also, like what we've been talking about. So I apologize. I am going to bring us back to like the speech pathology, the speech therapy side of it, because something that we talked again, talked about a little bit off camera and I was going to get into for this is like, well, one, one piece is that I, I have heard from somewhere and I don't know if it's true or not that children being raised bilingual tend to have delayed speech. Thank you for bringing that back because I, I, it was there and I forgot. That is not true. Okay. Here's why it might seem true, though. A child who is bilingual is going to have the same total amount of words, the same number of words. Mm, as I can already a, see where this is going. Okay. As a monolingual child. Okay. Mm-hmm. So by age one, we expect at least one true word. Many kids have way more than that. By age two, we expect children to be combining um, two words together, and we expect them to have a vocabulary of, I can't exactly ever remember because I don't care that much, but 200 words, say, upwards of 200 words. Okay. But if kiddo is bilingual, they might know that this that I'm pointing to is a perro, but they might not know that it's a dog. Okay. Got it. Or they might. Now, are you going to count perro and dog as two different words? I actually don't know the answer to my own question. I would probably say yes. Um, So again, it looks like they have a a delay because Mm -hmm. they're missing certain words in one language, but if things are going well, their vocabulary is developing just fine. Now, here's the red the red herring though, is for kids with language delay. Lots of kids get a pass because they're being raised bilingual and the speech delay, they have a speech delay and they're bilingual and it's not being picked up on because people are assuming, I'm so glad you asked me that question, thank you. Yeah. Um, people are assuming that it's because they're bilingual. That is not true. Interesting. So how can you tell like the difference, I guess, early? So early on, you'll notice. So basically what it looks like when kids are learning to talk and the milestones are like, they're going quick. They're every couple of months for the first year of life, right? We -hmm. want babies to be noisy. We want babies to be exploring their vocal tract. So we want them doing things like, ah, and I don't know with the zoom, if you can hear me, but like making noises, right. Um, exploring what this is. Once they get to be about six months old, we want them doing ma, 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 da, 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 ba, 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 all that. Okay. 
then it gets more complex and you might hear oh that sounds like i'm talking but i'm not talking yet right we need all those prerequisites in place to work the musculature to practice the 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 communication piece to practice taking turns turn taking is something that that your baby can already do um with eye gaze mostly with smiling with sounds um and that's what we're doing here right more or yeah. less taking turns talking that's a conversation yeah, yeah it's a right. little artificial on the, on the zoom but um and on a podcast so where am I going with this, Luke? I totally forgot. <laughs> um, yeah, where am I going with this? <laughs> we were we were talking about the potential of like how to find or oh, notice delay. delayed yeah. speech. Yeah, <laughs> oh with bilingual. Okay. Thank you. So, if so, first of all, the red the the the, the things I would be looking for are: is this a noisy baby who's been exploring? If the answer is no, and they're bilingual. We want to screen for a speech delay, right? If the answer is no and they're monolingual, we want to screen for a speech delay because they haven't been doing the things that will lead up to the verbal communication. Um, certainly, um, if we're not seeing rapid growth of vocabulary between age one and two, that's another time in either language. That's another time when we want to screen for a speech delay, a speech and language delay. Um, because what should be happening developmentally is going to happen in both languages, right? The, our brains as humans are primed for language, capital L, meaning any language, right? Yeah. And so just because, and, and there's some research to suggest that like two languages, totally manageable. Three languages, you got to pay attention. Four languages, mm, that's pretty hard to do. Okay, so it tops out around four if you're trying to be a native speaker of, of from birth, basically, right? You can yeah. learn as many languages as you want later through a different process. But so really what we're looking for is like, if your child is not learning new words rapidly, that's uh, where we want to look. And it's not because they're bilingual. It's because they're having trouble latching on to the building blocks of what they need to be doing and learning and saying from a language capital L perspective or a speech capital gotcha. S perspective, right? Like they're having trouble making sounds. They're having trouble learning what the words are. That's a different issue than do you say dog or perro, right? Got it. Gotcha. And that made me just think of like in the case of my son, that I, I, I don't know if it's all, is it always called a speech delay? Cause I always referred to what I had was a speech impediment. Um, so, yeah. The language changes um, and there's like professional jargon. And then there's what, mm -hmm. you know, slips into the public. Um, certainly people would understand what you said. If you said a speech impediment, that's a little bit of an older term, I think. Um, Not it. But I basically, what I would call it what a speech. We didn't even talk about the difference between speech and language. Well, we did not. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't go into detail, but language is what happens in your brain, speech is what happens in your mouth. Interesting. So if you look at this thing that I'm holding with water in it and you call it a tup. T-U-P, you have a speech issue, 
because you're not saying the k, you're saying you're saying a t instead of a k. Mm -hmm. If you look at this thing and nothing comes out of your mouth, or you say rabbit, you have a language issue. Okay. So early, early on for like two and under, we don't know what we're dealing with. We don't know if we are dealing with a speech or a language issue. Sometimes we're dealing with both. Mm -hmm. So usually we say speech and language delay, speech and language disorder, speech or language disorder. Um, and then, you know, there's lots of diagnoses in there too, but. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So what, whatever it might be called, um, cause I had, I had a speech issue. I can, I can definitely say that. That's right. Um, is, is it common for, I guess, for one, for that to be passed down mm -hmm. and then two, in the event that it is, is, does it affect both languages? Does it, for a child that's being raised bilingual? And then again, I mean, as a parent, if so, what should I be on the lookout for and do? <laughs> that's so interesting that you asked that question. Um, so yes, in theory, um, there is an element of speech and language, um, delays issues that is genetic. So yes, mm -hmm. if you have a family history or your child is more likely, uh, and yes, based on what you're saying about your history, you would expect similar, um, virtually the same, uh, issues in both languages. Gotcha. Because we're oh, talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're talking about how sounds are made. The interesting thing about Spanish is there are fewer vowels and there are, um, the R is trilled. And so you can get away mm -hmm. with, um, you can get away with an R, not having an R much more easily in Spanish than you can in English. So. Good for my boy. There you go. <laughs> Got a leg up. Um, he does. Um, now, all all of this is super amazing and super fascinating. Like, I keep saying that we need to do another whole nother episodes. And I mean that we absolutely do because we're 50 minutes in and I feel like we're just scratching the surface of everything. And there's so many rabbit hole or rabbit trails we could chase. Um, but I do want to do um ask you a question that's not speech related but still you related and because the way you speak about this stuff the way that you like i can just tell by your energy like how you feel about what you do like you're very passionate about it and i feel like you did something that so many people want to do but that fear of failure we talked about before gets in the way you turned your passion into your own business and you started a business and I just wanted to, and like I said, there's so many people that want to do something like that and don't for one reason or another and analysis, paralysis, fear of failure, whatever it might be. What would you tell people that have a passion like you do for it that are nervous about taking that step? <laughs> or would you say, Hey, don't do it at all. <laughs> and you know, it's funny. There, there was a time in my life when I would have said, yeah, don't do it at all. Um, I, here's the interesting thing. At the time that I started the practice, it was a step-by-step -step, client by client decision. And, and uh, hindsight, again, that's just kind of how it works. You've got a choice 
in front of you and you take a step. Um, and I've, I've done, and I would highly recommend at some point that anybody who's considering starting their own business at some point, get some business coaching, like get some personal coaching, get some business coaching, get coaching because that helps a lot. Um, but at first you're just kind of playing around, seeing what works, you know, you, you make a decision. I'm going to hire somebody. I'm full. I have too many clients. I need to hire somebody. All right. Well, how do I hire somebody? I don't know. I asked around and somebody said they wanted to work for me. So, okay, sure. Come on. Right. So like, <laughs> I think it was, um, the, and okay. The other secret weapon is my husband, um, who is my biggest cheerleader. He is the person who was like, of course you can start your own private practice. Like what is that even a question? So um, I think it, it helps if you've got somebody who, you know, is really in your corner. Um, of course. And, you know, again, sometimes that can be a coach, like, you know, yeah. um, sometimes it's your husband. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for you, it kind of just happened organically, like you super organically. Yeah. In fact, by the time I got to any kind of coaching situation, which I started investing in coaching for myself in 2018. I had had the practice for about 10 years, wow. eight, nine years. And I, I thought of it as this like overgrown bush because <laughs> it's like, well, I don't know. I guess, I guess I'll just like do this and I guess I'll do this and I guess I'll do that. And at that point, it was a, it was a tipping point where I really needed, like, I needed some strategies. I needed some policies. I needed like, you know, more mm -hmm. of a, a codified way of doing things, but I did not need that for the first nine years. I mean, there are faster ways to grow a practice. Let, let me be clear. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, but let's pace them on, track them on. So, okay. No, that's great. And I'm, and I've asked, I've asked that question to so many people and everybody's little answer is different, but I actually think you're the first person that's ever just been like, it happened organically. Like you didn't, you didn't necessarily sit down and be like, I'm starting my own business and I'm going to do that. No, like you said, even earlier, it happened one patient or client at a time and just built until built until you now are 20 years in 10, 10 practitioners and doing your own thing. And I love it. Yeah, I love it. It's fun. So con congratulations on doing that. Like it's truly amazing. And it's even more amazing that it's something that you are, truly truly passionate about and i love and oh i just love that um this has been but, so much fun luke i can't even tell you and i will happily come back if you decide that's what you want to do <laughs> yes i absolutely do because i think i think especially in like the where i'm at in my life even, i think it would help so many other people like we talk about the not even just the speech side but the parent coaching like you're doing so much more than just helping kids learn to speak well yeah. you're doing so much more than that and you have so much experience so we're definitely going to get that scheduled and on the books and bring you back um and i know that this will be i think a difficult question but it won't may not be for you we'll find out okay. but we are nearing the end of our interview this time so if our if someone popped into this podcast 55 minutes in and they only got one takeaway message from our time today 
and Ooh. you don't have to limit it to just one, but okay. if you were to, what would that message be to that person? There's so many messages. I know. That's why I said it okay. might be a difficult question. Yeah. Here's what you know. Here's what I want to tell parents. You know your child. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. Do not wait. If something feels off, it probably is. And so don't wait for that feeling to go away. Use it to get your child some help. That's what I would say. That's perfect. And yeah, and I think especially the way that some of some of us were raised, I'm not necessarily talking to me, but people just their upbringing have a hesitancy to ask for help. Like it's my child. I should be able to handle this. And I, I mean, I guess, what would you say to that parent that that's the way of thinking? So it's funny because there is this dichotomy right now. I feel like in the world where there are so many experts telling parents what to do. Mm -hmm. And I actually don't want to be that person. (laughs) Um, Makes sense. What I want though, is for parents to to understand their role and to understand how much agency they have and how, um, how able they are, how, how they are in the driver's seat to really um, affect their child's life um, in a really positive way. And so if that means getting help because this child in front of me needs help, I want parents to feel like they can be that version of themselves that does that irrespective of what their upbringing says, regardless of what their community says, that they feel empowered to step up for what they believe is right for their child. And if that means getting help for that child and going to the ends of the earth to find the right kind of help for that child, um, then, then, then yes, let's do that. Thank you. I love, I love all of that. Um, yeah. So unfortunately, cause I'm going to keep saying it, speaking to existence, we're going to do another episode, but we are unfortunately nearing the end of this one. Um, and I want to leave time for you. I always like to leave time to like, for you to quote unquote, market yourself. Thank you. um, <laughs> um, but like, if people want to continue this conversation with you, if they want to work with you, if they just want to get in touch with you, whatever it might be, follow your journey, any, any of it, what's the best way to do that? So I'm going to throw a bunch of social media, but I'll start with my website. Um, If you are in the Washington, D.C. area, Florida, New York, and Massachusetts, you can go to speechkids.com. If you are anywhere else in the world, you can go to raisingorchidkids.com. All one word, raising orchid like the flower, raisingorchidkids.com. I am over on Instagram at speechkidsdc. Um, we're also at Raising Orchid Kids over there. We have a fall class starting um, for parents of three to 12 year olds who are, um, we like to say, neurodifferent. 
um, or neurospicy, sometimes we say, um, <laughs> kiddos with or without a diagnosis who are challenging to raise, um, whose parents need some support, whose parents need some strategies and uh, sort of ways to better understand why their child is doing what their child is doing. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. Perfect. No, I, that's a, I love oh. that you are such a resource. Oh, keep going. The Complicated Kids podcast is on podcast players everywhere. <laughs> That's right. You have your home podcast. Everyone should listen to it. I'm going to start. Yeah. Um, yeah. So head on over there. Complicated Kids. Complicated yeah. Kids. And for anyone watching on YouTube, I will find a way to get all of these right around her face, our face. But they will all be in the description of the podcast, whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, hyperlinked and everything, you you will be good to go. <laughs> um, but I, I love that you are, what I'm learning is a necessary resource, hmm. um, especially for parents. And because I, I obviously being growing up and going to speech therapy, like I knew you were, there were resources out there for that. I didn't know because I never thought of it because I've never been a parent before three months ago. Like, what did my parents go through with having someone like myself that couldn't talk and then developing like that? Things I just never thought about. And you're a resource for that. And I thank you for being that. Ah, so fun to be with you. Thank you for having me. It's been really great. Of course. Thank you. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking this time. I know you're super busy. There's a reason that you've had to hire a bunch of people to help you out. <laughs> um, and we are, and I'm saying it and can't make a liar out of myself. We're going to do another episode um, and I'm getting the thumbs up for anyone listening. So it's going to happen. We'll get that scheduled, but seriously, thank you so much for taking this time. I've truly enjoyed this interview. I did too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Helpful Huddle podcast. Remember to give us a like and a follow on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter with the user handle at helpful underscore huddle and the YouTube channel at helpful huddle podcast. You are also able to listen to us on both Spotify and Apple podcast. The links are also found in the description below. Please reach out with your questions on topics that you would like to learn about in the future.